Good morning. Good morning. Um, so I'm Pat, one of the um, pastor elders here at Faith Union Bible Church. If you're uh, new th this, uh, uh, this Sunday, um, our senior pastor, Josh, this is his first Sunday of his uh, three-month sabbatical. And in uh, um, this first Sunday here, oh, sorry, I'm getting a, a wave here. If uh, children's ages five through fifth grade, um, they'd be dismissed. If, and uh, if this is the first time a parent going back would be great. Um, and then and children are always welcome to stay in the service too. But um, uh, this first time with Josh away, um, uh, I'm actually pretty happy that we had some, some, uh, some slip-ups here and, and, and some confusion at the beginning because it shows jo uh, Josh that he's missed, um, perhaps. Uh, but also uh, throughout this service, you're going to see each one of the pastor elders of our uh, most vocational uh, and, and, uh, and volunteer lay pastor elders uh, participating in this service to see we have a robust uh, leadership team to help us through this. Um, uh, pastor Josh's sabbatical has been planned, actually planned several times. This is the fourth attempt, um, and, and, uh, um, and, and they've, they are finally off. And uh, we were talking about this way back in the spring and chose uh, um, for the sermon series uh, to go through the book of Job. And uh, uh, so that's page 417 of your, of your Bibles. It's the one right before Psalms. Um, God's timing is perfect. And so... Uh, um, I will admit that when Job is my favorite book of the Bible, by the way, if you haven't heard that already, um, most of you have, definitely the youth have. Um, uh, when I was preparing this sermon uh, series back in April, May of this year, um, I will confess that it was very different than I've been preparing for it over the last several weeks. And this has been a difficult one. Uh, but I believe God's timing is absolutely perfect uh, for this. So let's start with prayer. God, you form light and you make darkness, you, you make well-being and you, you create calamity. You are the God who does all these things. Or should we accept good from you and not evil? Lord, we, we praise you as the God who gives and the God who takes away. We bless your name for who you are. We praise you that we are given the promise of being able to see you face to face in our flesh. And then when we see you or even see just a portion of you, we realize that we have heard of you with the hearing of our ears, but when our eyes see you, we must despise ourselves, re repent in dust and ashes. God, Though you slay me, I will hope in you. Amen. This is an ambitious sermon. It is 42.
two chapters, an overview of Job. Um, I told Josh he was crazy to try to do the five chapters of James in one sermon. So take heart, we are going to slow down over the next three months and go through individual portions, but this is going to be a whirlwind, and because of that, there is a, an outline in, this, uh, in your uh, handout, and there's more back there if you didn't get one, of this sermon. Because it's 42 chapters, it's a lot of stuff to go over, and you have probably heard of Job, um, and, uh, uh, but it is a, it's a long book. Uh, not as long as, as sometimes you think, because some of those 42 chapters are pretty short, but it's a lot of stuff. And if you have been with us at FCBC for any length of time, you have heard us talk about the sovereignty of God. And it's good to define what that means, what, what it means to be sovereign. To, so, to be sovereign is to be the master, the Lord to have supreme authority. In this world, we call things sovereign that really aren't. An example might be Queen Elizabeth. Queen Elizabeth, her title is sovereign of the United Kingdom. And she certainly has power uh, because of her position. But she doesn't know everything that goes on in the United Kingdom. She, she doesn't know what goes on even outside of her palace most of the time. You know, she has a limited understanding. And as powerful as she may be, she's limited uh, by that power, uh, both because she's human and because she's limited by laws, by, by parliament. So she doesn't have true sovereignty. She is not supremely sovereign. And so we can get some confusion uh, in what we mean by sovereign when we talk about God because we bring to that, wor- that word the definitions, the, what we understand the word to be. We talk of, of being sovereign individuals. There's, there's uh, some people who call themselves sovereign citizens. We think of ourselves as a sovereign nation, but we're limited in that sovereignty. When we talk about the sovereign Lord God, there are no limits to that sovereignty. We are talking about God being all-present, omniscient, knowing all, omnipotent, being powerful to do everything. He has supreme authority over all creation. And that may seem obvious Uh, to us, but it does raise some really difficult questions, especially if we are to believe, as Josh taught us last week, as as we've been teaching uh, as long as I've been associated with FCBC, that God is perfectly good. And so we get to a very difficult question, which is, why, if God is sovereign, is powerful, knows everything, can do everything, and is perfectly good, why is there evil and suffering in this world? And the world outside of God's church has some pretty simple answers to that. The Stoic may say that we suffer because we allow ourselves to suffer. The Buddha says we suffer because we care too much about the things that will make us suffer. 
The Hindu might say we're suffering because of karma, because we've earned this suffering in in our past iterations of, of life. And the atheist would say that our presuppositions are all wrong, that God doesn't exist. So Some would say, well, if God does exist, that he's not all-powerful, or he's not all-knowing, or he's not all-good. And those of us who identify as Christians often come with some simple answers, too. Say it's because of our sinfulness. Because it's not about you, it's about God. Because things of this world don't matter in God's economy. It's all in God's plan, and in the end, everything works out for His glory and His good. And each of these have truth in them, but they are too simple to address this problem of suffering. They don't satisfy our deeper questions. And Scripture in its entirety, in in the whole counsel of this Scripture, does not give simple answers. In fact, it seems like this area of, of, of our questioning, like so many other areas, is not a problem to be solved, but it is a truth, a mystery with which God calls us to wrestle. We sometimes suffer because of bad choices we make. There are consequences in this world that God created. We suffer because of sins of others. And we sometimes suffer just because of the curse that is on this world because of the generational sin uh, that has broken this world's relationship with its creator. But Scripture says that it's not just sin that brings us to suffering, that it's not just the brokenness of this world that brings us to suffering. He says that, the, that while the righteous will prosper and the wicked will perish, that the godly should not be surprised when they meet trials, fiery trials, he says. He says, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. He says that the wicked man often prospers in such a way that he says in his heart, I shall not be moved, and in all generations I will not meet adversity. And Jesus himself promised his disciples, his faithful ones, in the world you will have tribulation. So Job, the book of Job, is going to delve into this problem. It's not going to try to, to dismiss this problem with simple, question, or simple answers to a difficult question. It's going to ask, why do the wicked prosper? Why do the righteous suffer? Is God truly sovereign? Is God truly all-knowing? Is He truly good? And this is a question, it's in your, your outline, of theodicy. It comes from two words, which mean God and righteousness. And it's, it's defending, it's, it's talking about looking in to this question of, of how do we resolve a, a, a sovereign and perfectly good God with evil and suffering in the world. So over the next three months, we're going to be just studying this book. We're going to be addressing this question, and today we're going to go over a, a broad overview of what the book of Job says. It's, uh, we're going to look through what, what David Helms calls uh, in, in the 
in some of the studying some of us have been doing, the melodic line. What are the notes? What are the chords? What are the things that sort of resonate throughout the entire book of Job? And what I've found as I've, as I've looked over this more and more and deeper and deeper as I come to today is that the chief melodic line of, of the book of Job is this, that God is sovereign in our suffering. God is sovereign in our suffering. The book of Job does not shy away from these hard questions. It dives right into them. It starts, again, page 417 will be, I believe, the first page in your pew Bibles, but the book of Job, chapter 1, verse 1, starts right off the bat. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. You cannot say that the Job who suffers is not a righteous person. Right off in the bat, he is righteous. He is blameless. He fears God. We're going to hear Job's friends later on say otherwise, but we know this from the very first verse, that the man who is about to, to see unspeakable suffering is a righteous person. A few verses later, we're going to see that God is not passive. He's not just along for the ride as Job suffers. I'm going to look at, into uh, verse uh, a little bit further down uh, to verse 8. This is after Satan comes before uh, God in the heavenly court. Satan hasn't brought up Job yet at all. We'll, we'll get more into this next week. But, but Satan's not even talking about Job. And God says, have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright God, or man who fears God and turns away from evil. And then he is going to hand Job over to Satan to suffer. He's not passive. He, he not only points him out, he's going to do this a second time a few verses later. And each time he provides room for the adversary to inflict suffering on this righteous person and to set limits on how far that suffering can go. And so while some have concluded that the righteous suffer because God is unaware, impotent, or perhaps apathetic, the book of Job renounces all these things. It says God is not only aware, but he is involved. He's not only capable, but he's in control. He's not only involved, but he is intimate in Job's life and in his suffering. God is sovereign in our suffering, and he is not just sovereign in our suffering, he is sovereign in all of our suffering. God is sovereign over our suffering when it is a consequence of our sinful actions. He is sovereign over our suffering when it is the consequences of the sinful actions of others. He is sovereign over our suffering if it's a result of the fallenness of the world, and he is sovereign over suffering like Job for which we cannot see easy reasons for why that suffering would exist in the first place. We have a hard time thinking that a righteous person could suffer because God desires for some reason for him to suffer. And that's difficult. That's uncomfortable for us to consider. So hear this, when, when his disciples asked Jesus, why is this man suffering? Was it something he did? Was it something his parents did? 
Who sinned to make him suffer like this? Jesus said, in this case at least, he said, said it's not though. It's not because someone sinned. It's so that God's glory, my glory, it's for God's glory. And again, that may be why you are suffering. And even with my glasses off, I can recognize faces still. And I know there's a lot of suffering in this room. Know this, we might not know why, but God is sovereign in your suffering. If God is truly sovereign over all the world, and He is, then God is also sovereign in our suffering. And there are some deep and troubling implications of that truth. If God holds supreme authority over our suffering, we are saying he doesn't just allow suffering to happen, that he doesn't just set boundaries for that suffering. He doesn't just set boundaries on how severe that suffering can be, but that he commands our suffering. He ordains our suffering. He may even inflict our suffering. We're saying that the God who wrote every one of our days in his book before one of them came to be, the God who knows not only the number of those days, but everything that will happen in those days, even the, the color and the number of the hairs on our head that he planned, knew, ordained, directed, and wrote the details of those days, whether they would be filled with times of abundance or or times of need, of plenty, hunger, light, and darkness, well-being, or calamity. I am saying that if God is sovereign, He is sovereign over Job, who worships Him. He is sovereign over the devil and his demons who tremble before him. And I'm saying that God is sovereign in our suffering, which he can use and does use, not only for his glory and purposes uh, that, we, that we enjoy, that, that we celebrate, but for his glory and purposes we often cannot fathom and do not like. This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? John 6, that's what Jesus' disciples ask him. But our God is the God whose teachings are often hard. He is a God who says he is a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. And these are even harder teachings when they move out of the theoretical and into the real life. T.S. Lewis wrote this about the death of his own wife. We were promised sufferings. They were part of the program. We were even told, blessed are they that mourn. And I accepted. I got nothing that I hadn't bargained for. Of course, it is different when the thing happens to oneself, not to others, and in reality, not imagination. That's why I'm not wearing glasses today. Can't read through the fog. Each of us responds in a different way when these sufferings come on us, when we're confronted with these hard 
teachings and hard experiences. We can mourn, we can worship, we can despair, we, we can minister, lament, we can be angry, we can cry out, we can lose hope, we can seek to escape. And the book of Job shows us all of this in just the first few chapters. And as the suffering continues, we can try to rationalize and we can try to make sense out of it with our own wisdom. As we work out our response to our own suffering, then those around us, especially those who care about us, are trying to work it out for themselves as well. And we'll start hearing some of those voices as they try to interpret our suffering or their own suffering. And then we'll hear other voices in, in media, right, and, and on the internet and television, print, radio, and all of those can inflict uh, or can affect how we interpret our suffering. And Job is going to hear all sorts of counsel to try to interpret his suffering. At first, Job responds to his suffering with mourning and of all things worship. At the end of, uh, of uh, chapter 1, we see that he tears his clothes, right? He, 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 he falls on his face. He, 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 he worships. Naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked I shall return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. But as his suffering continues and worships or in, in worsens, he hears another voice, a voice of despair. This one from his own wife. And we have to remember his wife is suffering too. His wife lost her children. His, his wife lost her uh, means, her well-being. And so she cries out in despair later in chapter 2. Curse God and die. But Job holds fast to his integrity. He rebukes that voice of despair. Shall we receive good from God and not evil? And all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Likely months after Job is afflicted, his friends come and they find him miserable in the dust, in the ashes, and they show up, they make an appointment to show up to, and, and to show him sympathy and to comfort him sitting with him in the ashes for seven days. In a few weeks, you're going to hear from Don George about the powerful ministry of that presence. But when Job's suffering drives him to cry out and lament and even curse the day of his birth, say that he wants to die, his friends can't hold their tongues anymore and they start to speak. And so Job's going to hear some more voices from the, from the world. We're going to hear from their speech that these friends know God's teachings intimately. They don't yet have the benefit of this entire book of Scripture, but they speak truth out of their mouths, though sometimes and often incomplete truths and some lies as well. They speak of how God prospers the, the righteous and, and punishes the wicked. But there is something missing in their words. And as we dive deeper into them in the coming weeks, we're going to see how partial truth, how oversimplified truth, out-of-context truth is not truth at all, but a lie. 
the two great back and forth dialogues of 20 plus chapters of Job, we see these similar themes appear. And there are probably similar themes uh, that, that you have heard, or maybe that you, like me, have spoken to those who are suffering. But before we get to that, let's think of what the three friends don't say. None of the friends tell Job that they grieve his suffering. They don't tell him that they hear and have compassion for his cries. And none of them tell him that they love him and desire his relief. And it's not that they aren't grieved or they aren't compassionate. Remember, they showed up. They traveled from great distances to show sympathy and comfort him. They sat with him for seven days. And it's not that we shouldn't speak truth to those who are suffering. But when Job cries out in pain and lament, instead of first listening and consoling, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar begin to lecture, and they do so in incomplete truths. And these half-truths not only lead astray, they wound Job more deeply. First, Eliphaz is going to, in chapter 4, speak that the righteous prosper rather than suffer. He says, remember, who was innocent that perished? Or where were the righteous cut off? Later in chapter 8, and we're moving through this fast, I know. Uh, later in, in chapter 8, uh, verses 6 through 7, he says, if, Bildad says, if you are pure and upright, surely then he will rouse himself for you and restore your rightful habit, habitation. And though your beginnings were, was small, your latter days will be very great. By inference, they are telling Job, because he is suffering, he's not prospering, that he is not righteous. They also indicate that if Job were just to turn away from that sin, whatever it was, that his suffering would end quickly. They even make promises to Job that God will restore him in this life. And they have no authority to make that promise or claim. That the righteous prosper, that the wicked will perish, is true and demonstrated throughout the, the Scriptures. In Psalm 1, the book right after Job, it starts that the righteous are like a tree planted by streams of water, whose leaf does not wither, who, who, or who yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Yet the Scriptures also teach that in this life, under this sun, the righteous don't always prosper, and indeed they suffer. And so we can look at Psalm 1 and see how the righteous prosper and, and, and the wicked perish. And then we can go to, chapter, to Psalm 3 and Psalm 4, 5, 6, skip 8, or 7, skip 8 because it's about God's magnificence. 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, a third of the Psalms are lament. And most of them talk about how righteous people are suffering and a cry out to God asking for relief reasons, and where he is. In Ecclesiastes chapter 9, the preacher bemoans, it is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and to the unrighteous, to the wicked and the good, to the evil 
to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner. And he who swears is as he who shuns the oath. It is an evil in all that is done under the sun that the same event happens to all. The righteous will indeed prosper, but not necessarily now and not necessarily in this life. Throughout Scripture, both, both Testaments, we read that God's promises are in His time and His frame of reference and not ours. Well, God in His mercy often brings relief to our suffering on earth, and He will make all things right in eternity. Sometimes suffering in this life does not pass. Sometimes it gets worse. Throughout this discourse, Job's friends seem to be unable to hear Job as he continues to cry out for relief, to despair that he has lost hope. And he eventually rebukes his friends. And he rebukes their accusations that these sufferings are due to unrighteousness on his part. You'll turn to Job chapter 13. Verses 4 through 7. These are pretty harsh words. As for you, this is Job talking to his friends, as for you, you whitewash with lies. Worthless physicians are you all. Oh, that you would keep silent and it would be your wisdom. Hear now my argument and listen to the pleadings of my lips. Will you speak falsely for God and speak deceitfully for him? But Job's friends aren't done. They don't hear this rebuke either, or they, they rebel against it. They, they respond against it. The second round of their speeches starts in chapter 15, and Eliphaz essentially shushes Job. He tells him, be quiet. He says that his crying out mark him to be a fool. In, in 15.2, he says, Should a wise man answer with windy knowledge and fill his belly with the east wind? He is literally saying, Job, you are full of hot air. And you are speaking out of your belly, out of your flesh, instead of out of your heart. Saying that his words are meaningless before God. The God who says, cry out to me, they're saying doesn't want to hear him cry out to him. And then they move from an emphasis on the righteous prospering to the wicked perishing and being punished. And again, in, in Psalm 1, we read that the wicked are not so. They're like chaffed. The wind blows away. They don't have a place in the judgment. They don't, they don't have a place in, in the council that they will perish. Proverbs 12, 11 says, the wicked man will not go unpunished. And taken out of the greater context of scriptural truth, we might deduce, as Job's friends did, that if the wicked are punished and the righteous prosper, that Job's suffering is due to his wickedness, that it proves he needs to repent. And so his friends move from questioning Job's righteousness to accusations against him of unrighteousness. In chapter 18, 
Eliphaz says that Job does not fear God. I'm sorry, before that, he says he does not fear God. In chapters 18 and, and 20, Bildad and, and, and Zophar speak about terrible things that befall the wicked. It's almost as if they are talking about this generic wicked person while pointing their fingers at Job, the sufferer, demanding that he repent. When we get to chapter 22, verses 5 to 11, we read Job's response. I'm sorry, uh, we we read Zophar's accusations against uh, Job 22, I'm sorry, 5 through 11. Sorry, Eliphaz, is not your evil abundant? There is no end to your iniquities. For you have exacted pledges of your brothers for nothing and stripped the naked of their clothing. You have given no water to the weary to drink, and you have withheld bread from the hungry. The man with the power possessed the land, and the favored man lived in it. You have sent widows away empty, and the arms of the fatherless were crushed. Therefore, snares are all around you, and sudden terror overwhelms you, or darkness so that you cannot see, and a flood of water covers you. These are all lies. We're going to read elsewhere in Scripture over the next months that that this is exactly the opposite of who Job is. But his friends trying to understand why a righteous person would suffer say, well, that's not, that's impossible. So he must be unrighteous. And they manufacture accusations against the man who does the opposite, who brings water to the thirsty, who visits the, uh, the widow and seeks just causes for them. These are hurtful words. And hurt like this happens when we try to force God and His limitless sovereignty into the box of our limited understanding. They can't understand that God and His sovereignty would allow a righteous person to suffer, so they twist Scripture to fit their narrative, and twist events to fit their narrative rather than submit to God's sovereignty. They're relying on their own finite faculties to comprehend the infinite God. And if that were the end, if the world's words were the end of what Job could rely upon, then we would be left where he is, without hope, devoid of answers, in despair. Job recognizes that he has nothing to turn to in the wisdom of his friends, and so now he turns his pleas away from them his defense is away from them and toward the sovereign God. And his first question in chapter 23 is, where? Where is God in my suffering? 23.3, he says, Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might even come to his seat. A little bit later in verse 8, Behold, I go forward. He's not there and backward, but I do not perceive him. On the left hand, when he is working, I do not behold him. He turns to the right hand, but I do not see him. He doesn't deny that God is present, but he laments that he is blind. He can't see God's presence. And then his next question is why? In chapter 24, why is there injustice? Why do the righteous suffer and the wicked prosper? In 24 verse 1, why are there not, why are not times of judgment kept by the Almighty? And why did those who know him never see his days. 
But then he starts asking the game-changing question. What? What shall I do in this suffering? The answer to which he arrives is the same one to which James pointed us to in the last sermon series or two sermon series ago. To seek wisdom from the sovereign God. You move up to 28, chapter 28 of Job, starting in verse 23. God understands the way to it, and He knows its place. For He looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. When He gave the wind its weight and apportioned the waters by measure, when He made a decree for the rain and a way for the lightning of the thunder... Then he saw it and declared it. He established it and searched it out. And he said to man, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. So Job closes his case. In chapter 29, he recalls what he knows to be true about his past. In chapter 30, he laments suffering in the, in the present, and in chapter 31, he submits himself to the righteous judgment of his sovereign Lord. And then the sovereign Lord speaks. And all my former youth group people know that this is my favorite part of the Bible. First, he speaks through a man named Elihu, whose, whose name means he is my God. And so in verse, or chapter 32, uh, we read that in the middle of verse 2, he burned with anger. He burned with anger at Job because he justified himself rather than God. He burned with anger at Job's, free, at Job's three friends because they had found no answer, although they had declared Job to be in the wrong. Now Elihu had waited to speak to Job because they were older than he. And when Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of these three men, he burned with anger. There is a place for righteous anger. We're not very good at it, but this is a place for righteous anger. When lies are being spoken to a sufferer, and when a sufferer is driven to so much despair that he can't he can't cry out and acknowledge that God is good. So first he rebukes Job's friends and their accusations against Job in verse 11. Behold, I waited for your words. I listened to your wise sayings while you searched out what to say. I gave you my attention. And behold, there was none among you who refuted Job or who answered his words. Beware lest you say we have found wisdom. God may vanquish him, not a man. He has not directed his words against me, and I will not answer him with your speeches. And then Elihu proceeds to rebuke Job, not asserting that his present suffering is due to past unrighteousness, but instead rebuking him for responding to God in his suffering with accusations against God's justice and against God's character. In, in chapter 35, verses 9 through 16. Because of the multitude of oppressions, people cry out. 
They call for help because of the arm of the mighty, but none says, where is God my maker who gives songs in the night, who teaches us more than the beasts of the earth and makes us wiser than the birds of the heavens? They, there they cry out, but he does not answer because of the pride of evil men. Surely God does not hear an empty cry, nor does the Almighty regard it. How much less when you say that you do not see him, that the case is before him, and that you are waiting for him. And now because his anger does not punish and he does not take much note of transgression, Job opens his mouth in empty talk. He multiplies words without knowledge. And then Elihu shifts Job's focus on his worldly sufferings, on his worldly point of view, to the majesty of God. In chapter 37, verse 14. Hear this, O Job. Stop and consider the wondrous works of God. Then he goes through extolling God's greatness and ends with these words. And verse 23, the Almighty, we cannot find him. He is great in power, justice, and abundant righteousness. He will not violate. Therefore, men fear him. He does not regard any who are wise in their own conceit. And then God blesses Job by speaking to him directly. He speaks out in a heavenly anthem. You know, this is all poetry. This is a song that, that God breaks out in over Job. It's called the theophany by many. God speaks. He doesn't answer Job's questions. But the Almighty, the one who is clothed in majesty, whose voice shakes the foundations of the temple, whose presence blinds people's eyes, he responds to Job. He draws near to him and he speaks to him with questions of his own. Out of the war, in chapter 38, then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Then he carries him throughout a tour, a verbal tour of creation. He calls on Job to try to, to comprehend the vastness of what God has done. Earth, seas, skies, sun, light, darkness, Wind, weather, stars, clouds, lightnings, animals. And then he finishes this first discourse at the end of, uh, of chapter, I'm uh, sorry, the beginning of, of uh, chapter 40. And the Lord said to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. And in perhaps the wisest words since chapter 2 that Job has spoken, he says, he responds this way, Behold, I am a small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once. I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. And God says, I'm not done. Having impressed on Job the vastness of the creation, he says, dress for action like a man again. 
I will question you and you make it known to me. And he continues his anthem, calling on Job to consider the, the limitlessness of God's majesty, his knowledge, and his power. In chapter 40, uh, starting in verse 8, will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Have you an arm like God? And can you thunder with a voice like his? You know, last week we heard about the first two humans and how they fell and how they were tempted because they wanted to be like God. They wanted to follow their own path and, and have their own rules, their own reasons instead of God's. And Job has cried out for God to give him reasons and for relief to the suffering that, he is not, that God has not just allowed but ordained as if God doesn't know what he's doing. God essentially says, show me your deity, and I'll acknowledge your power. Show me how you have the power to save yourself, and I'll acknowledge that you do. And then God continues the theophany, and he takes him on another tour of creation. And this time he calls on Job to consider two animals that Job would fear that Job would not understand. He would consider terrifying, untamable, more powerful than himself. Bamoth and Leviathan. Some people believe that that's the hippopotamus and the crocodile. Two animals that Job just can't get his mind around. Job asks for reasons. God answers that his sovereignty and how he expresses his sovereignty in his ways and purposes are incomprehensible. So the book of Job changes back from, po uh, from poetry into narrative again, and we find Job in chapter 42 repenting before God's sovereignty. Verses 5 and 6, he says, I had heard of you by the hearing of ears, but now my eye sees you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. And we see God in his sovereignty rebuking God's friends. And a cool thing, if you look at, into that, is that when he rebukes God's friends, he restores Job at the same time. He says, ask Job to pray for you. So Job goes from being the accused right, to the advocate for the accused. He restores him there. And, and he accepts their, their sacrifice. He accepts God's, or Job's prayer. And then he restores Job. He restores him not only his status, but also other areas of well-being, and he enjoys this until he dies, a man, an old man, full of days. So how do we apply 42 chapters of Job? Hear this. Cry out to the sovereign God. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. They're already at chapter 42, so the next uh, couple pages will bring you to, to Psalm 9. In verse 12, we read this. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. You who lift me up from the gates of death. That I may recount all your praises. And in the gates of the daughter of Zion, I may rejoice in your salvation. So cry out to the sovereign God in your suffering and know that he hears you. 
And then trust that the sovereign God who hears you will, re will reveal himself. He reveals himself. He gives relation, relationship to those who cry out to him. So as we go through this, uh, these next three months, as we sing songs of truth, as we pray scripture, as, as we cry out with our hearts and in our suffering, know that he hears us and that he reveals himself to those who cry out to him. Next, if God is sovereign in our, in our suffering, then trust in the sovereign God. His ways are higher than our ways. If you flip forward a little bit further, you're going to end up in the book of Isaiah. Uh, a few books further, in chapter 53 or 55, verses 6 through 9. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our Lord, for he will abundantly pardon. God says this through his prophet. My thoughts are not your thoughts. Either your ways, my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Amen. So if we're going to trust in the sovereign God that his ways are higher than our ways, then we need to submit to God, the sovereign God and trust in those sovereign ways. That's hard. Praying all week, just repeating. <laughs> I don't do chanting, but it's been pretty close. Your ways are perfect. Your timing is perfect. But let your request be made known to the sovereign God and trust in his sovereign answers. Josh once was talking about uh, Hudson's uh, difficulties with with his uh, his stomach, and uh, and he had related a, a conversation he had with Hudson, saying, "Hudson's his son. If you don't know Josh, and he said, uh, um, I believe God's going to heal you. Now he could heal you miraculously. Like you wake up tomorrow, you can eat whatever you want, right? And 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 we just praise God that He healed you, and we don't know how." And he could pray, he could heal you by this medicine that you don't like, that mom's got to prepare for you, and, and you got to eat a special meal or a special diet and everything, and he could heal you that way. And he could heal you by taking you home. Hudson said, I, I don't think I want the last two. <laughs> Let your request be made known to God. He's sovereign and then submit to his sovereign answers. And then this, whether you know God, you know his son Jesus Christ or not, hear this. If you are suffering, seek 
the sovereign God, for that is eternal life. You're going to have to turn a lot of pages here to John 17. It's towards the end of your Bible, or in the New Testament, beginning in the New Testament. All these people ask Jesus, how do I inherit eternal life? Jesus said it's really simple, but not so, not so simple. It says in 17.3, John 17.3, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. To know the sovereign God is to have eternal life. Not to know about him, but to know him. If this were in Hebrew, it would be yada. It would be to know. It would be not just to know this, but it would be the same way in which we read, and, and Adam knew his wife. It's intimate knowledge. Know, knowing the sovereign Lord is to have eternal life. Hebrews 1, it says, Long ago, in many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But if you want to know God today, if you truly want to know him to have eternal life, he says, but in these last days, God has spoken to us by his son. To know the sovereign God is to have eternal life, and he speaks to us, he reveals himself through his son. And James 4, 8, he promises that if we will draw near to him, he will draw near to us. And so, do you know God? Do you know his son, Jesus Christ? Is the Holy Spirit in you? Then you have eternal life. And if you don't, please, as we've been saying, talk to the person who brought you here, or if uh, someone didn't bring you here, you came in by yourself, talk to one of us. We would love to introduce you to, to Jesus Christ, that you would know God, that you would know his son, that you would be indwelled with the Holy Spirit and have eternal life. In this world, if you are a follower of Christ, you will have tribulation. If you desire to live a godly life, you will be persecuted. You will suffer, but take heart. Christ has overcome the world. In 1943, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was imprisoned in a Nazi jail. He, he was, would eventually be executed. In 1943, he writes a letter to his fiancée, Maria. And he's quoting uh, initially a, a German poet named Stifler. Or Stifler. Stifter. Sorry. Stifter. Uh, Poet Stifter once said, pain is a holy angel. This is uh, in your bulletin, too. I, I printed this. Pain is a holy angel who shows treasures to people which would otherwise remain forever hidden. Through him, people have become greater than through all the joys of the world. And Bonhoeffer says this about that line. It must be so. And I tell myself this in my present situation over and over again. The pain of suffering and of longing, which can often be felt even physically, must be there. We shall not and need not talk it away. But it needs to be overcome every time. And thus, there is even 
an even holier angel than the one of pain, and that is the one of joy in God. Let's pray. God, we, we want to know you. Um, and so, so whether our, our days uh, would be filled with, uh, with light or darkness, of, of well-being or calamity, or whether uh, we would be in, in plenty or want, whether we give or, or take away, um, we exclaim, blessed be the name of the Lord. And Though you slay us, yet shall we hope in you. Amen.